This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. I'm super excited today. I have Leah Arapach here, who is, to me, one of the most extraordinary sculptors uh, that I know of. Uh, she's one of those people that, if you're into art, if you're into making sculpture, and you you're into metalwork, she's she's the one who sets the high bar. So, Leah, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. The first time, the first time I really heard you. You were on the Axe and Iron podcast with Chris and Roy, and boy, that you sounded like you were having so much fun with those two goofballs. I was, yeah. I, I love those guys. Chris is a pretty extraordinary guy. They've created something that's pretty interesting. They also have a bit of an abusive relationship with each other. It gets a little <laughs> bit like you know, calling each other fatheads and idiots. But I, I, I'm, yeah, I really learned a lot about you, um, and then I got to see your work. And there's an extraordinary quality to the sculpture that itself that is, I mean, I, it's really hard to explain. Do you, do you think you could kind of talk a little bit about your sculpture? Yeah. Um, well, I think that <laughs> it's, it's basically the result of a lot of different neuroses coming together. Um, hmm. And that, uh, you know, I, I'm very detail oriented and um if I can't get a lot of detail into a piece, it somehow falls short of uh hitting the mark for me. So um the more I can kind of work things out on the piece, basically torture the steel into submission, <laughs> um, the the more uh the more satisfied I am with the sculpture. But ultimately the pieces wind up becoming um very detailed, uh, almost a lot of people say they look cast steel sculptures, um, that I'm mostly fabricating together. One of the things when I used to do, I was, when I was an art major and we used to do critiques, it became very difficult for me to go to critiques with other metal sculptors because I could see if there was a weld or I could see if they used a grinder or I could see if maybe they and I could see where they ground the, the splice, and then all of a sudden there's where you hit it with the wire brush. I could see all those things, and it, it got to the point for me, it was hard for me to look at work without seeing the hurdles of the process. When I look at your work, and I think that's what you're, you're getting at, people think it's cast. There's no scale. There's no, you don't see grinder marks. You don't see any chasing marks. You don't see, you know, you have this perfect texture in all your splices and stuff like that, that it gives the viewer the ability to actually kind of look into the narrative of the work without being hindered by the process. And that's like the most successful thing I can say. I mean, that's like, it's envious. It's the point where you just want to give it up. When I, I mean, I, when I look at the level of detail of your work, I just want to give it up. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I think that my frustration is in the fact that it's not, I'm not revealing enough of my process. Like I look at other artists that let the metal be the metal and they, they I'm looking up to them um, hoping that at some point I can kind of let go a little bit and be more gestural and, and allow the material to come through because I've also heard like, if you're going to, I mean, aside from the fact that I love to spend my time fabricating um, 
like, why are you making this in steel if you can make a clay version of this and cast it in bronze? Like, what is it yeah. about the steel? Why is that so important? Um, and I never have a good answer for that. It doesn't necessarily perpetuate um, the concept. It's just what I like to spend my time doing. That's a, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you because it got to the point for me as a, as a sculptor who I love working with steel. I just, for me, you know, sculpture in, in general, it's either additional, you just, you either add or you subtract. And, and I always like the idea of adding and, you know, being able to weld, you know, you know, waiting for glue to dry. And there's these really oper great opportunities to kind of uh, bend the way you think. And it's not like wood where you have to wait for stuff and then, you know, you carve out and all that. So that's one of the things that I always used to think. I was a fan of uh, David Smith and, and, and welders and, and sculptors who the weld, the fabrication was an intrinsic part of the work itself. And the, the thing I was thinking about you and I was thinking about uh, sculptors like, I mean, you can't not think about Louise Bourgeois if I'm thinking about your work because there's a lot of, simil there's a lot of similarities <laughs> in terms of like the, you know, in terms of... Um, the fabrication process and you know you you do work a lot with these you know spiders and, mm -hmm. and insects and almost like it's, it's almost like the, your works a lot of the work you do besides the mantises and the spiders and stuff it's some of it looks like it was like taken from a microscope like they're these mm. they're these incredibly small monsters that were kind of built to be enormous and it's hard for me not to talk about um Louise Bourgeois, because she started to do a ton of work with these big steel spiders. And when you get to the point where you're, I'm looking at your work, the, all I could think of is like, and I, I look at a lot of people who use steel, and they are using steel, and steel is important because of a reason or two. And I was going to ask you that question is like, you know, you could do this out of plastic, you could do this out of almost, I feel like you have a complete command of material. And I'm just, I'm interested to know your history in regards to metalwork. Like how, why was it, why do you think it was steel? Um, <clears throat> well, it's, you know, I, I actually tried a lot of different things. So, um, it's, it's not like I ever sort of question my decisions at this point. I mean, I, I definitely go through a lot of existential crises, but, you know, landing in steel and doubling down on that and double du doubling down on that again, um, feels like a very, you know, uh, years of, experimenting with different materials. And, you know, I started out as a painter in art school um, and I just couldn't get myself to sit in the chair uh, for, for long enough to do anything meaningful with paint. Um, and, you know, then I started working in 3D and well, I liked clay, but it's just one of those things where I, they put me in front of a welder and I liked the smell of the burning metal. I liked the feeling of being in that shop and the way you have to move your body in order to um, sculpt. I like the all-encompassing aspect of that. And I think that it's it's a lot about being organized and control too, because it's easy to control a piece of clay. It's a lot harder to control a piece of steel and make it do something that is not really what it wants to do at all. That's the best. Yeah. I, I totally, and I think that it's probably why you do so well at it. And also, I mean, I've, I've been saying forever that blacksmithing is a, is a completely about organization mm. because you really have to go, you can't, there's not a lot of going backwards in, in, in forging and metal work in general. And I loved how you, how you said that you love the smell and everything like that. There is something 
there is something very, you know, you can't be a sculptor. You can be a clay sculptor, but it's hard to, you don't have to deal with a lot of equipment and, mm-hmm. and like procedures, like welding and, and, you know, using gas torches, welding stuff. And there's like procedures involved. It's far more industrial. You get kind of more in contact with how things are actually made. Yeah. And I think I really, I think I'm really drawn to that. Um, like I, I like to work in a methodical way. I like for there to be high stakes. I like for, you know, um, well, I guess I've really appreciated the idea of, you know, getting acquainted with new pieces of equipment and tools yeah. all the time instead of kind of just being able to, you know, do it in a very small way. It just feels a lot more expansive when it comes to approaching sculpture, you know? It, 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 it is. And there's, there's something, there's something a little bit more connected to, you're more connected to, you're less, you know, when you're doing like bronze, I mean, when you're doing a lot of sculpture, you're kind of separate from reality. You're kind of separated. You're more like in the world of the artist, but when you're working with metal, you have far more connections with actual like fabricators who are not sculptors. Mm -hmm. And you end up, you end up having these kind of strange relationships with like fabricators and 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 it reminds me of like especially talking i don't really talk to a lot of artists i know john ariani is a good buddy of mine and he's a master of fine arts and Mm -hmm. you're a master of fine arts and um there's a lot of there's a lot of crossover in just regular fabricators and metal sculptors the problem is is there's also a lot of like hindrances like the hindrances of you know you become friendly with these fabricators and then you end up going to an art show and then the fabricator says, well, I could have done that. You know, it's this, it's this strange, it's this strange relationship where fabricators just think that they're very creative. Sometimes they think, well, if I've seen, you know, they look at a Richard Serra sculpture and they're just like, I could have done that. I just take a big piece of steel and lump it on the ground. Yeah. Well, I mean, two, two things. Um, I actually don't have my master's in fine art, just my BFA, but it did take me seven years to get. Um, But the second thing is, I, I, as far as I know, a metal fabricator hasn't ever come into my show and said that they can do the sculptures that they're seeing. But, um, I, I do think that that's true. And I think that that's also something that I really love about it is that there's, it feels like because it's also this craft that, uh, is just constantly evolving and that there's so many different aspects of it that there's a lot more opportunity to be creative and to learn um, different processes and sort of uh, evolve as an artist because I'm always learning new things. I haven't even touched machining. I'm just, you know, Hmm. just barely experiencing blacksmithing now and it's completely blowing open, you know, what I think I can do with the material. Um, And I Hmm. think that if, you know, clay hasn't really evolved all that much. Like you can do a certain amount of things with clay. And then as soon as you start getting dynamic and, and having these things that are small aspects that are moving off of this larger form, it's going to break, you know, there's just, there's just zero limitations with steel. Yeah. All right. I I just need to, I need to kind of dive back deep because one of the things that I think people don't understand is you grew up in Montauk. Yeah. <laughs> Montauk is interesting to a lot of the people who, when you hear about Montauk, I just want to give a little bit of a geography lesson because I have something where I want to go with this. So Long Island is kind of off of Queens and Brooklyn, off of Queens really. And it's this Long Island that kind of like 
goes juts out to the Atlantic, and then it once the north side faces Connecticut, and the and the and the south side faces the Atlantic Ocean, and then the farther you go out, you can kind of go stay towards the top, the Connecticut side, for lack of a better word, and end up on the North Fork, mm-hmm. which is my, where my sister lives, and I I'm in the North, I mean I go to the North Fork as often as I can, not not now, but. And then if you go kind of on the south side, that's when you, towards the end, that's when you get to the Hamptons and Sag Harbor and then kind of like keep going and you keep going. And then, then you get to Montauk. Montauk is known for, it's a very seasonal town. Would you, would you say that's fair? Yes, absolutely. Growing up in a seasonal town, you end up having these total, it's a total transformation between the summer and the winter. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, I'm just assuming because of the North Fork is the same way, is in the summer times, it's tons of tourists, tons of people who want to get out into the, uh, get out to the bars and take pictures next to the, you know, the, the docks and stuff. And in the winter, it's like the real Montauk people. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely what it's like. <clears throat> what was it like growing up in Montauk? Um, I, like personally, I, I think it was a little bit difficult, um, you know, and, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Camp Hero, but I grew up on Camp Hero, which is this one random right-hand turn before you get to the lighthouse. And it's old. It's a 27 houses that were former military housing. Hmm. And it and then you walk through the woods and there's an abandoned Air Force base. <clears throat> so what was that like? It was weird. Um, like, oh. so, uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the TV show, Stranger Things. No, I watched a little bit of it. I, I, I don't want, I don't watch, I didn't watch. Well, it, it was based on this abandoned air force base. Um, and all the weird stuff. There's a lot of conspiracies around what happens there because there's still, you know, active bunkers and, um, people policing that area. Really? Yeah. So when I was a kid, um, I would spend a lot of my time in the woods by myself, either going, you know, into the swamps to catch frogs or to go play in the abandoned buildings, um, on this abandoned air force base. That's, and, and there wasn't, because I know that also on the North, off the North Fork, there's a, there's a small Island, a research facility called Plum Island. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is where there was a lot of I don't I'm under the impression it's like I was told there was like testing of like you know biological weapons biological stuff and there were all these stories of deer coming from you know swimming over from Plum Island you know you know and that's how you know the story was that's where Lyme disease came from is like this deer off of Plum Island that kind of so you're nodding head yes and I, yeah. I obviously. What's going on with Long Island? They have these weird <laughs> abandoned bases and like strange facilities. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I grew up in one of those towns. Like I've, I've started watching, you know, a few Stephen King things. And I, I feel like he has a very strong obsession with like a certain town and that town being cursed or just being very, very weird. And I feel like Montauk is kind of one of those towns where, yeah, the Plum Island is a, an animal testing facility. And then, you know, the, there was that whole thing with the Montauk monster uh, washing up on shore, and that thing looked really oh, weird. Yeah. Um, what was that yeah. thing? I don't know. <laughs> Wasn't it like somebody said, like, it was like a, that's right, the fucking monster. Yeah. I forgot about that little bastard. Yeah. <laughs> somebody said that it was like a, that it was like maybe like a hairless raccoon or something. Yeah, yeah. I think that that was the, 
That was certainly the speculation, but it looked fucking, very, very weird. Um, fucking Monarch. I forgot about the Montauk monster. Yeah. Because <laughs> you guys get like sharks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, I think that the uh, the original Jaws, like the shark that they they um, made the movie after was was caught off the coast of um, Montauk. It was a huge, why great white. Billy Joel, why didn't Billy Joel sing about any of these weird shit that's going on in your area? I mean, he's right down in Sag Harbor. Yeah. He's not that far from Montauk. You'd think he'd sing a song about like how weird it is out there. Yeah. <laughs> All that money and weirdness. Yeah. And I mean, growing up there, uh, you know, it was, it's one of those places where like for a while we had a movie theater. It was a run, it was a one room movie theater and it would only be open in the summer and then it would shut in the winter time. Um, but there's like, you know, one school, one movie theater, a small library, um, a couple restaurants, and then like 27 bars. <laughs> so I, there's also a pretty big drinking culture in the town as well. So I got invited to, I invited, I was a friend of mine's an art installer. Mm. And he asked me to come help him install some art and non talk. And I'd never been to my, I mean, I grew up in New York City. I'd never been to Montauk before. I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. So I came and then he took me to a bar, like a local bar. I don't remember the name of the bar, mm. but it was very, he kind of gave me like the heads up. He says, don't look any, don't really look at, stare at anybody. <laughs> don't really be too loud or anything like that. I'm like, mm. I'm just going, what do, what, what do you think I'm going to do? I mean, it, it was this very odd conversation of just like preparing me for being in this bar. I, was like, I just want a beer. What, I, why do I need like some, I'm not going to do anything weird. He's like, yeah, you know, but this is kind of like a tough area. I'm like, Montauk is a tough area. I didn't. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm wondering, because I mean, I know that I know that a lot of these seasonal towns they have almost like a, I would they have like they have the seasonal people and then then they have the like the lifers who are there during the quiet times and over in the North Fork I know that when my sister's in Greenport she likes it when it's not the summertime because then nobody's there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's a it's kind of a um, a weird relationship that the locals have. It's it's very uh, like it's very macho. Like there's definitely yeah. like a locals versus non-locals vibe in like kind of a way that I've like would liken to Hawaii and I feel like it's a competition over waves. Like they don't want non-locals surfing there and crowding up the lineups and stuff cuz it's it is actually a pretty tremendous um surf destination as well. Um so you have a lot of people that are holding on to this um this sense of entitlement over the space and um that don't also realize that like whatever economy they're a part of living in Montauk it's in- incredibly dependent upon people coming there and spending money you know um so i feel like <clears throat> There's there is a lot of hostility against city people. In fact, when I go back to Montauk now, nobody recognizes me, so they just think I'm another person from Manhattan. And like yeah. I've gotten people like get in my face, and I'm like, I know who you are. Like you don't, you're not recognizing really? me. Yeah, yeah. That's cr- but so growing up, was there? Did you did you feel the sense? I mean, it's just it's still stunning to me because I mean, like you you drive. I mean, I don't know how far you know how far it is from sag harbor to to montauk but i mean you're literally talking about like under an hour right? oh yeah it's like it's like 30 minute drive it's crazy mm-hmm. it's crazy that it's just so i i would i'm gonna imagine that it, it you you end up growing up a little bit kind of harder which mm. you, anybody i mean you wouldn't think you wouldn't think that if you're growing up in, in montauk that you'd have kind of like a you'd have like a harder shell 
of a, of a life. Yeah. Um, cause it's, it's actually quite rugged and a lot of, um, a lot of people that live there are commercial fishermen. Um, and their job is very hard and dangerous. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, then you add in like the long Island, like, you know, a lot, a lot of our parents too are from Babylon. Like my parents grew up in Babylon and then they moved oh. out to Montauk. So they also have this like aggressive long Island, like, you know, yeah. um, experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people in Montauk, it's a, and I don't know, I think it's a mixed bag, but like, certainly my family was pretty dysfunctional and was very like, you know, very, very proud of how hard they are for hmm. sure. Well, I just, I, it makes me wonder what school was like. I mean, how did, was it, was it, did you enjoy school? I loved school. Yeah. I was really good at school too. Um, so I went to Montauk public school um, if you don't go to Montauk public school, you go to a private school. Um, right. so most people go to Montauk. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I definitely excelled there. I, I loved, I loved doing school. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I was in fifth grade, uh, the teachers realized that I was getting like really bored in math class. So they like put me, we didn't have like a magnet school to send me to or, you know, anything like that. So they put me at the back of the room with uh, a high school sequential one textbook and just were mm. like, start doing the problems, you know? So um, like being in such a small town and not having a ton of options educationally, like I probably... I mean, it wasn't necessarily a huge deal because I don't think I would have become, you know, a, a, an astrophysicist or anything. But, um, you know. Montauk could have used it. Montauk could have used an astrophysicist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, it was weird. I mean, I, I think that I was really bored growing up there. There's not a lot huh. of stimulus. Like, I being out in the middle of nowhere, like, the, how we were so far out there, we didn't have cable TV. They hadn't run the lines out there. So, it was just, it's crazy. you know, I and now I live in a big city, and I, I love everything about, like, experiencing a lot of different culture and cuisines. And, you know, I have recently learned that I'm a sci-fi nerd because I just didn't have any access to that stuff when I was a kid. So, this is almost like a second, a second growing up. Yeah. I mean, you were being on that little peninsula. I guess is it a peninsula? Yeah, Montauk. Yeah, that you're just like you're 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 hidden away except for during during the summer times and all that. And the New Yorkers are showing up and being and, and being you know just wearing their Montauk "This Is the End" T-shirts with their bumper <laughs> stickers that say, you know, "This is the end." And I've I've been to the end. That's the that's the bumper sticker I see a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think it was really. Uh such a weird incongruity to bump up against people that are coming out from Manhattan that are so worldly and, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, and feeling like you don't live that far from them, but you're living a completely different life, you know? That's what, that's the crazy thing. Yeah. You know, you're, I mean, the Hamptons are like considered the, the, you know, the diamond of Long Island and it's like 20 minutes away. There's this kind of like weird abandoned, Air Force feel, yeah. Air Force places, and I just it's it's it is it is truly it is truly it's like a it's like a different it's a totally different world. Yeah, yeah. When did you start kind of being creative and making? Um. Well, I would say that I, 
I didn't really, I think that I was always doing things like that. Like my parents were both pretty creative. My, my mom, she would love to, she loved to craft. And my dad, um, he was a marine mechanic, but he'd also do a lot of woodworking projects and stuff like that. Um, Hmm. so they were always doing their own thing and, um, you know, doing something cool and creative. And I think that was always just sort of part of my upbringing. Um, but I wasn't one of the artistic kids. Like I had friends in school that were really good at drawing and seemed really passionate about that. And, uh, I think it took, it was, it, it, it took me a while to realize that that's what I wanted to do. I I got really interested in art in high school. But I mean, that's kind of how sculptors are. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, I tr- my dad was a painter and I couldn't hack it as a painter. I, I just, I knew at a young age, I could never be as good as him. And then I just found sculpture. I kind of was pushed into it. I was really like very similar to you where I, w- I thought I was going to try to, when I was in art school, I was going to try to be a painter, but it just, I couldn't get in the class. And then I ended up going, I'm so, I'm so stupid. I, my, my advisor said, well, you know, you're just a freshman. It's hard to get in some of these classes. You can get in this 3D design class. So I just assumed that it was drawing in 3D. Mm. I was so stupid. I mean, that's the stupidest thing. It was a sculpture class. Yeah. It's like 3D design. It's like, how dumb can you be that you thought that it was a drawing class? I'm like, walking in this space, I'm like, why are there bandsaws and like table saws <laughs> here? Like, this is a drawing class. I'm like, no, d- dummy. It, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact. I think that there is something to do with your father being, um, was he, would he work at like a yard working on boats or? Yeah. I mean, most people in Montauk, in some way, shape or form are, are servicing the, the fishing industry. Right. Um, so my dad, uh, ran a Marina, um, and, uh, he was their head outboard mechanic. So that must've been, that must've been busy. He must've been busy. All yeah. The I mean, the summers, it was seven days a week, you know, everyone's got to, everyone wants to get their boat in the water and stuff like that. Um, and then my mom, she, uh, she opened a store in town and it was like a, a like sort of a home store. So, yeah. but she was also doing like, she was trying to sell, um, custom furniture and shit. So she was like making my dad make these hutches. We'd go up to Massachusetts and pick up barn board and then he'd build these hutches for her store. So they were always like working on crazy projects together. That's, that's so interesting because I was, I talked to, uh, this n- incredible knife maker. His name is Josh Prince a, a number of months mm, ago mm-hmm. on yeah. Uh, knife yeah, talk. Yeah, he is. And he was talking, he was fascinating because like a guy like him, very similar to you in, te- in the sense of they were, they were raised by people who did things. So you got to see your, your mother doing these, uh, projects in her, in her, in her home store. You saw your dad working with his hands. There had to have been some sort of like osmosis to kind of get you into being able to work hard because i mean i would think you know the other thing back to montauk is so you know all these people are coming in the summertime and then your dad who's a, who lives in montauk with you you know your whole family he's having to service these kind of you know these non-regular these uh out you know these seasonal people mm-hmm. i would yeah. imagine that it even makes it a leave and, and and then the summertime that's when everybody needs to get their water their boats in the water yeah i would imagine that it was even it was a little bit tense that in that regards too well, I think because he had done it for so many years, he was just really used to the ebb and flow of things. And and fortunately, because Montauk is and like, you know, if you own a boat, you probably have good money. Like, 
you know, yeah. a lot of people knew how to take good care of my dad to get their boats in the water, you know, like yeah. he was always coming home with like a basket of lobsters or clams or scallops or like, you know, I'd come home and there'd be a giant albacore tuna hanging out of the sink. And my mom was like ready to fillet it up and can it and stuff like that. So yeah, that must have been amazing. Yeah. I was really, really spoiled when it came to fresh seafood. Like I, I can't, I can't that's not where eat. All the, that's where the tuna. That's where all the tuna comes from, and right. I mean, yeah. this is the the huge. Did you ever go fishing? Yeah, yeah. I miss it actually. Um, you know, I I haven't been on a motorboat in like a really long time. My husband <laughs> thinks that's funny because he he grew up in California, so he's a an avid fly fisherman. Um, and, uh, I haven't tried that yet, but I think that I'm, I'm going to have to do that. Cause I, I'm used to just like, you know, dropping a, a weight off of a boat and going for flounder and bottom feeders yeah. and stuff like that. Fly fishing is my favorite. I love fly fishing. It is. Mm. Your husband is right. It yeah. Is. There's something about it. It's, it, there's, it's, it's, I usually, I used to tell people that fly fishing is like the TIG welding of fishing. Mm, no wonder because, I'm avoiding it. <laughs> um, is that, you don't TIG weld? You no. Do that, you do that intricate work and you don't, you don't do a TIG weld? No, I have one. I need to start uh, playing around with it. You've stunned me. Yeah. <laughs> You've stunned me. The, the level of intricacy you do in your work. Let's now, we're getting it back to your work now that we know that. You're doing this at the with the hardest. You're doing it with, all with a MIG welder. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, Louise. <clears throat> all right, now we got to get back in the metal. <laughs> now I need to know. Now I need to know because that's the thing. It's you know the TIG welding. I call it the gentleman. I call it the fly fishing and welding because you know in one hand you have the the wand and then the other hand you have the filler rod mm -hmm. and then you have your you know you have your pedal. So you're kind of like you have to work it all at the same time and it's very much like fly fishing where. It's not, you know, with regular fishing, you know, you're just putting the lure or the bait where it needs to go. But for fly fishing, you're kind of like, it's all about the movement of the, of the line and kind of laying it down. There's a little bit more to it. And then with your other hand, you're, you're, pull, you're, pulling, out, you're pulling out line out of, your, uh, out of the reel to, to allow you to kind of add more to get your cast out. So there is a, a similarity, but you've just kind of blown my mind because, you know, MIG welding is so much more, you're adding so much more material mm -hmm. to your joints and stuff that you constantly have to grind it all down. Yeah. I mean, I think that the way that I approach it is like, I set myself up so that that material is advantageous to my cause. Um, yeah. So yeah. I intentionally leave gaps or undercut things so that I'll have that material. Um, so I've just gotten so acclimated to that kind of um, way of connecting things. And oftentimes, like, I'm just holding a piece and I just want to be able to tack it on there. Um, and that's, you know, it's not to say that I couldn't go back and weld everything up with a TIG, but, you know, I, I, I don't have a ton of control over the... Um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience with my TIG welder. So I'm, I fear that I don't have a lot of control over the temperature. So I don't, what the last thing I want is to weld something up and have a bunch of pits because it was too hot and I was pulling too much material and not filling enough. Hmm. Um, yeah, you do, you do, sometimes you do get a little air, you know, bubbles in there. Yeah. I, if you melt it too much. Wow. So, but that's just an excuse. I, I don't no, know. I no. just haven't learned it. Listen, when, you say, <laughs> when, when, when you say, I don't have control. I'm rolling my eyes a little bit because when it comes to your work, the level of control is insane. I mean, it's just like, it's totally insane. So 
So I appreciate your hum- being humble, but I mean, it ain't going to work with me. <laughs> I know, I know that you, I know, how, I know, I, I've seen your work. I've like just stared at it and it's just like, it is, it is amazing. So when we get into, you know, you got, you get into college and you're, you're starting to, you know, you're starting to head into uh, making a sculpture and you, what got you into the, the welding part? I, I think I just covered, I covered that, right? You, you just, you just like the smell and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so, so like I actually, when I was at SCAD, um, and that's where I spent like the first three years, I, I was probably just, if I had, if I hadn't almost died while I was there, I probably would have stayed the course and been a painter and graduated in 08 with the rest of my friends with a degree that I had no use for. Um, and actually, fortunately enough, <clears throat> um, that didn't happen. Like I had an opportunity to kind of uh, like take a step back and be like, is this even what I want? Is this even the the place I want to be right now? You know? How did you almost die? Um, I had an appendicitis attack and uh, I went to a learning hospital and the surgeon was, it was probably their first appendix, appendix removal. Um, and it went fine. And then, you know, two days later I was like dying of, uh, of gangrene basically. Gangrene? So, yeah. How did, how did that happen? So what happened? They just, they, cause I had my appendix out. And it was in the end, my, my doctor said, I'm going to do lipos, lipo, liposcopic surgery. Yep, yep. And it was such an obnoxious guy. And he, he, uh, he said, you'll, you'll be able to wear a bikini in no time. He said, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got, <laughs> I almost wish they had gone directly in at, the, you know, like, but I, I guess all's well that ends well, but, um, they did mine laparoscopically as well. And so I guess what happened, cause your appendix is just like this tiny pinky sized thing that dangles in front of your intestines that like when they cut in with the laser to cut it out, they cut into my intestines and didn't realize it. And then I had brutal internal bleeding, like to the point I had a, um, like from the middle of my rib cage down to my left knee was just purple. So I went back to the hospital and was like, this doesn't seem normal. And they were like, yeah, you had a, this is really bad internal bleeding. And because it was done laparoscopically, like you have all the blood was like in between my two, like my stomach and my, like my, uh, stomach lining. So your body was, was loading up with your blood. Yeah. And so, and Mm. like, once it dries, it, uh, it feels like sandpaper. So like it, even breathing was like extremely painful, but they were like, you're fine, go home. And then I went home. And then two days later I went back and they were like, Oh no, no, you have a, you have a, uh, an abscess in your abdomen, the size of a grapefruit. And it's, it's gangrene. It's killing you. <laughs> Is this now learning hospital, the Arapach learning? Hospital? No, <laughs> no. Um, my parents were like, really like, they just, uh, they they were not interested in in taking any legal action. And then when I met my husband, um, you know, many years later, he was like, "What? What do you mean you didn't? See? We could have been rich." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it was just uh, I was just glad because they they also saved my life. Like I went back there, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah. and they they were studying me, like because it's a learning hospital, yeah. and the the strand of gangrene I had was very rare, but. Um, there is something about, you know, the funny thing about healthcare is, is you do, when I had my appendix out, 
they laid my arm down in a way that when I got knocked out, they leaned my arm out flat and then they put in the whatever to knock me out. And there was something about how they laid me down and the, my, sh- my shoulder blade pinched the nerve in my shoulder. Mm. And, it, and it, I had a wing scapula for like six months. That means like when you raise your arm up, your, like your shoulder blade keeps going. Ah. It's this crazy looking thing. So, and then I didn't have a complete range of motion. And I was like, I'm, I don't know. I, mean, I didn't know if it was ever going to go away. And a friend of mine was a lawyer. says, I want you to go see my friend. And I'm like, look, I'm not interested in suing. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to sue. And that's what they said. They said, oh, that's you're the, then you're the perfect guy. And yeah. the, the, the suing thing was so weird because he was just like, we're going to just do an investigation. And if we think it's worth it, we're going to call you. And then obviously, and I was just like, this isn't really what I wanted to do. I'm not going to, you know. And the, can you, can you, the suing thing, and I can only imagine what your, your husband has to go through, but I mean, it was like, it was like very much along the lines of like, well, you know, can you, can you throw your baby in the air? Yeah. Like, I, don't really, I don't really throw my baby in the air, but I mean, I guess not. Well, then we're going to sue. Yeah. And it's like, it turned into nothing, but you, you do feel that guilt of like, yeah, they did save my life. How can I, how can I turn around and, and, um, and try to sue him? Yeah. I, I mean. Yeah. And, and truth be told, like, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm fully back to normal now. Like I, you know, it, I didn't have any, it, it wasn't irreparable damage or anything like that. So I think it's actually kind of hard to, um, to, even if they, if it was clearly a mistake that was made, um, it's really hard to, yeah. Yeah. How did you, so then, so then you kind of went back into sculpture. You 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 saw your you you have considered a new life. Yeah. So I mean, I was in the hospital for two weeks. I just wanted to get out two, of there. You were two weeks. Yeah. Um. So I just I, I you know I had a lot of time to reflect and was like I don't even think this is the right spot for me. Like I I don't really you know I I wanted to take some time off too. So I I was bartending when I was down there, and so yeah. I decided to just take a semester off and just bartend, which was a terrible idea because it's really hard Why? because it's because it's such a it's such a it's such a wonderful experience art that oh, well you know i mean you meet such wonderful people <laughs> i i yeah i mean i think the biggest problem for me was like it's really hard for your body to heal when you're constantly soused in booze which i was because i was yeah. just bartending all the time but um you know it was good to 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 step away from the stress of art school. Cause art school is hard. I mean, I, you know, I think I'm still like reeling from the PTSD of them being like, you don't get to have a life. Like, you yeah. know, coming up on Thanksgiving, I remember we would go on that break and all of my friends at other colleges were like, they were legit done. Like they, they were yeah. able to like, just chill out. And we would always be given like this 70 hour drawing that they wanted us to do over the break because we had more time to do something better. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so taking a break was good. And I think, yeah, it just gave me an opportunity to think about, uh, how short life is and like whether it it really pays off to keep going down a rabbit hole that you're just getting the sense you don't really want to be painting anymore. Like why, why spend the time and money doing that then? Painting's tough. Yeah. Painting's tough. I feel like I loved, I have friends of mine who are painters. And the funny thing is, is, you know, when I talk, when I, I mean, your work is in museums and galleries and stuff like that. Mm. Paintings, I find like, I find that paintings are very easy or easier 
for people who are not artists, but who are art dealers and art sellers to sell and to talk about. I find that sculpture becomes very hard for the non-person who works with their hands to be able to talk about or even sell. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th I think that the big difference between sculpture and painting, and one of the things that I kind of shied away from with painting is like, I didn't want to be somebody that was making illusions and like that a painting mm. is an image of something, whereas like a sculpture mm. is something. And, um, mm. so I feel like, you know, there's, there's only so many techniques and colors in the rainbow and, and like different, different ways to be painterly. Whereas like, you know, a sculpture, you have so many different mediums and so many people doing different experimental things with those materials. And, uh, you know, I think that that's why it's hard for gallerists um, to talk about it or to try to sell it because number one, sculptors most most of the time have a, a, a much higher overhead than painters. Um, yeah. But uh, that's true. But they don't, you know, they don't know. I mean, I, I couldn't like tell you about wood, <laughs> you know, like right. I wouldn't be able to be like, wow, this is really amazing because of this, this and this. Because I don't know, you know, I have a few friends that do really beautiful woodworking and they've been teaching me things. But, you know, I, I can't speak intelligently about, you know, the craft. Hmm. It's interesting because I, I helped start a uh, postgraduate uh, art critique at a museum nearby. And we had some of the best uh, sculptors and painters in the, in the Hudson Valley. And I just remember going going to these critiques and we'd kind of rotate around and we would do these like, you know, almost two-hour marathon critiques mm. on two different artists. And then we, they were talking about painters, they were talking about the brushstroke, and they were talking about the history of painting. And they, they, you can tell and with paintings if, if a painter is having problems in an area, you can see when they're kind of fighting the paint and stuff like that. And then there were, you know, these, this guy was a very famous, you know, art critic and, and uh dealer and stuff like that and he's talking about the painting he's talking about and he has a clear grasp of what the painter was trying to do based on the history of painting plus how yeah. paint is worked and whatever and then i brought in one of my stupid little gas welded birds with braised brass and i might as well have brought something from a, a different planet like the way he was talking about it he was unable to decipher how I mean, we were doing these kind of like csi trying to investigate what was done and how it was done and stuff like that and he was talking with such um, just confidence in what I had done. And, I, and it got to the point where I was just like, I'm never coming back here again. Because this guy <laughs> has no idea what I'm doing. And it was like, it got to the point where it was like, I was like heartbroken. So I was like, mm. I invested all this time and energy hoping that this art dealer or this art critic would be able to understand what I was doing and have a grasp of what I was doing. And I was just like, this motherfucker doesn't know. I mean, I wasted a pile of time with a guy who doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, so I would imagine that in, the, in your situation with your your stuff, it's very similar, you know? Yeah. I, and I mean, that could, that definitely can cut both ways, too. Like, I love hearing a child's opinion of my work. Like, my niece is one of my favorite critics, you know, because she's she doesn't know anything about metal fabrication. She yeah. just tells me that it's properly creepy and she loves it or, you know, that one, not so much, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I, I often can hear some really interesting things from people that don't know anything about metal fabrication that are looking at my work and, you know, just are are um like not distracted by the craft as much right. and then you know it's always nice to have you know 
just a, a group of metal fabricators that can also talk intelligently about what they're what they're seeing and um but um when it comes to galleries and museums, well, I have I have more luck with museums, but galleries, I, I have a really hard time showing in galleries because they yeah. just don't know, they don't know what to do with me. Um, and uh, they don't, you know, I, I, I'm kind of against the model in general. Like if you have, if you have a painting on the wall that's $300 and it occupies the same amount of space as a sculpture that I've spent 300 hours building and is obviously more than $300, like why is it that like, you know, your handling of commission is exactly the same for those two pieces, you know, without any consideration. And it's just like, oh, it's, it's 60, 40 across the board, period. It's like, that's not, it's just such a suspiciously like, ridiculous um boilerplate thing as a business agreement between you know multitudes of different artists and how they handle their materials and how what their overhead looks like you know and so if i'm putting a let's say i'm putting a ten thousand dollar sculpture in your gallery and now you're calling it twenty thousand dollars because you need to get fifty percent and i'm getting fifty percent why should you make ten thousand dollars off of this when you when you know you're the same amount of space in that gallery is being occupied by something that you're comfortable taking $150 commission it makes zero sense to me it's i think it's a grotesque yeah i'm 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 so disillusioned and the, the only reason why i'm as disillusioned with the art world as i am is because i've created a business where i don't have to fucking i don't have to fucking worry about yeah i can now make art where i'm able to like not worry about like hoping to sell yeah and i think that i think that now especially with uh I, let's just get it out of the way i mean i always thought that uh, gallerists were pimps and that, <laughs> no it's true it's i mean yeah. they, i mean it's exactly what's happening because i've seen gallerists take on an artist mm -hmm. and then help build their career by creating the uh, the uh, demand for this person, mm. they bring them around. They da 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 da. Then and then they 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 look at the they look at the uh, and this might sound like sour grapes, which is fine. I, I don't have a problem. I got no problem with sour grapes. I I wanted to be an artist and just like I got dilution disillusion. Yeah. But you they take these people around and then they create this concept and then they look at the the the. Uh, it's almost like when they see these horses and they look at the teeth. You know, a lot of times mm. when you get to this high level of fine art they want your pedigree because if they have your pedigree then they know who you studied under and they actually know your teachers especially you go into graduate school and then they know oh he went to yale this is his teacher this is the, the style this is and you almost you're almost betting on their success and then you're trying to help that along and the problem is is all you need to do is show up drunk or offend someone, and then that whole thing goes away. You know, mm. it's a very fickle business. All of a sudden, it goes from this is the greatest artist to ever live to this guy's a piece of shit and he's just an asshole, and we're yeah. done with him. There's a, I've always felt, I mean, well, always, like the last seven years, that they're pimps. And, and, I, and I, think that, I think that now with social media and with, with COVID, for God's sakes, I think you're getting older people who are unable to use um, social media and they're kind of not being able to sell as well as an artist can direct. Mm. I mean, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I, I fully agree with you. And um, I, I feel like, you know, 
that was also an environment that I was around in general in the Hamptons. Like it's all about who, you know, and oh. like you, you know, um, and I, imagine. I just, I got a taste for it. Like very young, like where, where I had friends that were mega rich and their parents didn't want me hanging out with their kids. Cause they just didn't see any way that I could improve their station, you know, cause mm. my parents were blue collar. So anyways, like I'm, I've never, been able to engage with that, I will not work with anyone who's trying to sell me as a brand as opposed to just like, do you like this sculpture of this tortured insect? Cool. It's X amount of dollars. Like mm. I, I insist on working with people that I like and that I think are really focused on the art. I don't want to sell things because I have a reputation, you know, no, of course, and I don't, but I mean, <laughs> I but don't, I mean, but most of the time, you know, these gallerists, mm are also they're also trying i mean they're also trying to keep the lights on yeah and 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 they ha they're also looking at i i always you know i talked to you know i had a couple gallerists and you talk to them and they're creating a relationship because they don't want it to just to be one sculpture i mean they're hoping for like a long you know it's just you're networking and then all of a sudden next thing you know you're you're both being successful mm. i just think that i think that i think that number one artists are terrible business people and I've learned that because I was, and I had to make the decision as a, once I started this business to find someone who could um, take away my, my difficulties, take away the things that I'm bad at. Like my business partner is a fucking good business person. Yeah. And I, I just had to make the decision. And I, and I think that a lot of these gallerists take advantage of the hope and expectation of artists. And it, 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 it actually, be honest with you, it, it, my blood is boiling now even talking about it because, I mean, it's no longer about the integrity of the work. A lot of it's just about the, the ability to, you know, move it in volume, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely seeing that. I mean, I, well, I mean, to be honest, I'm seeing galleries shut left and right. Like they can't afford rent in right. San Francisco anymore. And so, um, I'm seeing a lot of brick and mortars actually close up and, and focus their, uh, galleries online, which is like, yeah, that's good. But there's also Instagram and we don't really need you guys anymore in that way. Yeah. That, um, that 50%, uh, that 50% gets, gets knocked down if you're, yeah, if you're, yeah, if if doing you're putting Instagram thing, you know, I mean, but I'm sure it doesn't, if, if they're just showing you on their website right. i'm sure that they're still expecting 50 percent you know um but uh yeah i i, I don't know i i mean I, I don't really bump up against galleries all that often i i feel like i've heard so many horror stories that i try to avoid them at all costs and that's just a luxury like i just get to do that um because i don't have to you know push work as as much but you know i i i reached out to a lot of galleries when i um started when I finished a series and, and felt like I needed to start circulating things and not one of them, you know, even afforded me the dignity of a rejection letter. So it's, you know, it's not, it just doesn't feel like a viable avenue for me personally with my work to, you know, rely on that. And then, you know, there are a few galleries that I work with that are awesome, but, um, not, I would like to give you my worst rejection story yeah. from a, san francisco gallery this is bad this was this was like this was like curl up i <laughs> curl up in the fetal position bad mm. 1997 i was making these giant fishing lures, yeah and they were great and they were great you know why they were great they were great because i was selling that's why they were great. they were also just it, great it, it, though they're great they're they're good they're fine and 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 i'm like you know the the, the 
the older I get and the longer I look at them, some just like, you know, I'm ready to go on some different, but regardless, it was, I had a gallery in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Well, Jackson Hole, Wyoming was perfect. It's where everybody's fly fishing. Mm-hmm. I was moving like eight to nine a year, wow. which was perfect to keep me going. I mean, I wasn't making, I wasn't making like $200 at Bluer. I wasn't like living off of Jackson Hole money. I mean, yeah. these motherfuckers, who knows what they were charging. <sighs> So this was bef- this was like the begin ninety seven like the internet really didn't take hold yet we were just you know we were just kind of starting it up and stuff like that so I had taken a picture of uh, of the lures but the problem was is the lures were so big you couldn't you didn't know how the size mm-hmm. so my wife says just stand in front of the wall of lures so we can get a size so you can get some kind of scale so I t- I took a picture I was standing in front of uh, this wall of these giant carved lures and painted and stuff like that. And then we made postcards and we just started fucking sending them out. This is like before emails. We're just like a shit ton of postcards. Yeah. Found all the galleries we could. And then, you know, let's hope for, you know, what, it, what, are, you, what are you looking for? 10% return? I don't know. So I got a, I got a call from a guy in, Cal, in San Francisco and his name was Pierre. I don't remember his last name, but I'll never forget his name, Pierre. And he, he was not French. <laughs> if he was, I mean, I don't think it was so he says, we love your work. We want to have a show for you. We're going to give you a show. Can you send me some slides of your work? So I sent some slides of my work. This is great. How many lures do you think you can have? You can send me. We're going to give you a, we're going to give you a show. And I'm like, I can send you as many as you want. I get seven or eight or something like that. He goes, great. Send me seven or eight. And then we're going to give you a show in San Francisco. And then blah, 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 blah. So that he's talking about he's going to have a. And I had my, my cousin lived in, in San Francisco, so I asked her to come just look at, to go and look at the gallery. Mm-hmm. And he's like, gallery. They were going to have a show, and they were going to have a band, and the opening band, and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, weeks pass, I pack everything up, put them in a box, send them all out there. And then, um, and then I biked. I, was, I had a studio in uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and then I lived on 14th first. So I was biking across. Um, and then I, I biked across, and then there was a note on the door saying, you got a package from UPS, they couldn't deliver. So the UPS was on the other side of Manhattan, on like 14th and 9th or something. Like, I'll just, if it's a package, how much, how what could it be? So I brought my backpack, I got on my bike, I biked all the way to, to, uh, to the UPS. And I gave him the slip, and then this fucking, this fucking. So they bring out this enormous box, and I'm looking at this box, I'm like, what the fuck? I opened the box, it was all my sculpture. They had taken it all, thrown it into the box with maybe like a newspaper full of paper. So everything was rattling around. Mm. It was everything I'd sent them. They didn't wrap it up nicely. They didn't even tell me. And I'm like, holy shit. So I had the, my, my first, like I had a cell phone. I had like my first cell phone was like a block. You pull out the antenna and everything like that fucking huge. And I call him up. I'm like, Pierre, what the, I took, well, the sculpture's here. What is going on? I didn't, I hadn't, I was so like stunned. I thought. I'm going to miss the opening. And he says, we saw your work and we didn't like it. And I said, what do you mean? Like it? And she's like, yeah, it, you, 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 you kind of like dis, you, uh, you sent us a, a false bill of goods. You sent us the slides and, and the work didn't represent what the slides looked like. We, and then he started, and I was like, I'm like, I'm like stunned on the phone and he's just trying to get off the phone with me. And he's just like, and you really should reconsider being an artist because this was, this was really, this is this is this was some of the worst stuff we've ever seen click wow so now i have seven giant lure sculptures how the fuck am i going to get them back to my apartment i had to hang them from my my the 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 handlebar of my bike 
And some of them were like dragging on the sidewalk. And I had to walk them all from fucking 14th and 9th to 14th and 1st. And this, this, and I was like, I'm like shell shocked. He said he didn't like it. Started to blame me. And then not only that, you shouldn't be an artist anymore. So I got home. I slept everything upstairs. And I, we had this tiny apartment. And my, my, my girlfriend at the time was now my wife now. She comes home and I'm like, this the bikes in the fucking living room. The lures are just strewn all over the place in the living room. Big fucking, you know, some of them are like five feet long. And I'm just lying on the bed. And she's like, what happened? And I told her the whole story. And she's like, well, how do you feel? And I said, I don't feel like I can't do this anymore. I feel like this is not for me. I, I am not prepared. So it turns out this guy, Pierre, was a broker. He wasn't even a, he was, it wasn't even his gallery. So this was happening a lot. They were just trying to get people to bring work in and then they'd show up. They'd show into the gallery with the work. We're representing this guy. What do you think of this guy? And they would say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. But I had sent him like 300 pounds worth of sculpture. And it was like, it was, it was devastating. It was probably the most devastating rejection I'd ever gotten in my life to this day. I don't think I've ever gotten anything worse. And it really like, it made me super sh- untrusting of gallerists. Yeah. I mean, my, my blood is boiling. My heart is racing right now. I'm getting angry for you. Um, it was terrible. I, I was like, I was like 23, something like that. That's all. It was like, it was a, but it's a great story now. That's the best <laughs> part. Like it was a horrible. And I just remember like, you know, cause I got treble hooks on the backs of the lures so I could hang them from the handlebars of the bicycle. So just imagine me. I tried to ride and it was like, I this is embarrassing. People are staring at me. What the fuck is this guy? What is this guy doing? Is he going to like the dock or something like that? What is going on? And like going across 14th street, one of those busiest streets in the fucking New York with this pile, trying to carry the pile of these sculptures. I threw the box out. I mean, what the fuck made the box? Couldn't get a cab. I mean, what are you going to put all the sculpture and my bicycle in a cab? There was no way I had to walk it all home. It was the ultimate walk of shame, but it was like, I think it was good for me, ultimately. I think it was good for me because it just it made me realize that it was a humbling experience because I thought I'm hot shit. I'm gonna have this, I'm gonna have this San Francisco gallery represent me, and then it was like I'm never gonna California again. I'm never gonna ever go to California now. Yeah, I mean, God forbid you um, something actually works out and like you get a good opportunity. Like this is just this is so classic. I mean, I've just heard so many horror stories about, you know, you're lucky that, that you actually got your work back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot of people yeah. that I know have, you know, their work has been left in a pile of trash after like a fair or, you know, it's just been straight up stolen by people that disappear and that's not their name and they don't have a gallery. And um, yeah, it's, well, the reason, it's terrible. The reason why is because when you're making sculpture, you're the most vulnerable you'll ever be. Yeah. And when something is, you know, something that you're passionate about or sincere about is like, you know, frivolous, it's, 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 it's somebody's taking something from, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it just feels like also like whatever that guy's deal was, like he was trying to hustle something up and then he took it out on you. And like, you know, instead of being like, look, you know, I was trying, I was trying to hustle this up and it didn't work with, work out with this gallery. So I'm sending it back to you. 
all of a sudden he goes to a place where he's like, you should reconsider your career as an artist because he feels like an idiot for, you know, like it's just, I, I can't stand people that pass on the buck of like their fuck ups to other people. And, and especially like just prey on artists and, you know, we're already really sensitive people as it is. I think I'm very sensitive at least. And, you know, I, I don't, it's such a tricky thing where, you know, I think that, you know, whatever your, whatever your art practice is, it's hard to sort of distinguish that or compartmentalize it from your personal life or not, you know, to to, like whatever you're making, it's hard to not take it personally if people are not responding to it positively, but to go that extra, you know, length of, um, trying to take advantage of artists I mean, I just see a lot of people preying on artists, um, yeah. and I just think it's they're just the worst kind of people, you know. It's like I said, they're pimps. Yeah. And and it's and it's it's I actually I I was in this uh, studio space in Green Point, Green Point, Brooklyn, and um, we would do these uh, studio open studios because there's a ton of artists. In and one of the artists I worked for was a very famous artist, and she closed her door. She wouldn't do it. She's she, and she said to me, "I said I don't want. Give me a pile of people here. I want you." She goes, "I re- I can't have people coming into my space. It's just too, I, I'm too vulnerable." Mm. And I was like, ah, I don't know what the fuck she's talking about." So I was like, <laughs> "I put all the lures up and was like, let's fucking sell some sculpture." Mm. And these people were walking in with like a little Dixie cup full of white wine, and then a little fucking toothpick with a cantaloupe on it, and then they were just like talking and then sneering and then just being very casual when they're walking through my space and it all of a sudden i was just like she's goddamn right i'm never gonna do this again i can't it's too you're you're too vulnerable to 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 other people and then you you start to hear remember you you know how people refer to people as you know the sensitive artist it's true yeah it's totally true And and it's like you know when i look at your work going back to your work now we're gonna talk about walking walking around on bicycles your work is so pristine and there's this sense of of control and um incredible preparation incredible the contrasts and and of of the forms and the the composition really Mm. and everything about it i would imagine that you're very very attached to your work how can you not be well i mean i don't know i mean i just moved into this house it's smaller than our apartment and i'm like i need to get rid of some sculptures and i'm kind of tired of looking at certain ones you know um i think that i i I am attached to the pieces but not not in an unusual amount i mean i think that the energy that i put in isn't about a love affair that I'm having with a particular subject, you know, it's more about exactly what you were just saying, where I'm so, I know that art making is vulnerable. And, um, so I do everything in my power to bulletproof myself so that nobody can say shit about my work because I couldn't handle it. Right. That's the fucking worst part because even you can see, see the most beautiful stuff of all time people it's something it just doesn't fit for for some Mm -hmm. people yeah how did you get into kind of like 
these plants and these biological i mean i don't want to say i want to say biology almost because i mean there's such a there's such a intense feeling of, towards these these insects and these animals yeah um not animals insects I mean, you don't do any animals you don't mostly insects and plants yeah I, I, well <laughs> i'll say that i you know a lot of people have been like can you do a a portrait of my dog and i'm like i don't do fur it's not something that's steel it's not it's not going to translate i don't want to do that um but yeah like exoskeletal uh insects and and things of that nature um i just think that well i i had a pretty strong relationship towards bugs growing up i was always unearthing all kinds of weird stuff in the woods around our house and in the swamps and stuff um and uh you know, as I got older, I think I started getting scared of insects and, um, just feeling like, what is my, what is my problem? You know, what is my problem with the spider? And, and, you know, to be fair, a lot of that was probably moving to Savannah, Georgia, where like, if you're stumbling home drunk at night and you walk between two trees that are a little too close together, you're going to get stuck in a web with like, you know, 50 banana spiders that are like, the size of a softball like they're huge um what yeah there's big you know it's tropical so there's you know the wolf spiders are you know six inches and the yeah the spiders are really big and they have you know every every kind of cockroach known to mankind basically in savannah because it was this is in savannah yeah georgia hey, not, going, not going there yeah they have Jesus. really big spiders um what, yeah. what made you go to what made you go to to savannah um it was i would say well i didn't do a ton of research i new york was definitely not far away and like i I, you know (laughs) i wanted (laughs) to go far from home but also i don't like cold weather so i was not going to go to RISD. i was not going to go to you know anywhere that was um that was going to get cold I, i wanted to be in 120 degree swamp area wow so yeah so you got into the, so you, you, you know, the funny thing is when you said you had to learn to not be scared of, I don't think people feel the need to have to learn to not be afraid of. I think that people are just afraid of them and they just accept their fear. And then that's the end of it. I think people do need to learn to, to be less afraid of things. Well, I, I mean, like, you know, I, I think that I use the insects often as a metaphor for, you know, just the other in general as like, you know, in, in in human terms. Um, but like, you know, we think of a praying mantis, um, some of their behavior is just very foreign and weird and violent. And, you know, we just don't, it would be very taboo in our society, um, to like bite the head of our mate off, you know? Mm. Um, but instead of sort of understanding that and appreciating it for what it is and seeing it as this really interesting creature that we get to share this earth with, you know, a lot of people just want to stomp on it and be like, I don't want that thing in my space. I can't compete. Hmm. <laughs> I don't want that spider in here, you know? Um, and I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely some concern for the earth, especially with the, the execution series, but now I'm moving more into like monsters and, uh, plants. And I, I feel like I'm just, I'm putting myself on a different planet entirely for some reason, just hardcore escapism. Maybe I, I loved, I loved, um, 
when you, I, I went to your website and I was reading about your execution series. Mm. And well, I love something that you wrote, which was, I believe that the reasons motivating our ancestors to alienate with violence are the same as they are today. Yeah. Whether framed in terms of the other, racism, religious intolerance, hyperpartisanship, or otherwise, the phenomenon involves regarding, uh, I'm a terrible reader, but fine, that, uh, that which literally natural uh, as alien and threatening. I really, I found that to be uh, a fascinating part of what you were talking about, that, that connection between uh, the, the insects and, and, and who we are. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you think about most alien movies and things like that, they're usually modeled after, after like some sort of insect that actually is on our planet. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that we, we do that. We do that all times. Things that we don't know, we fear and it's, it's really problematic. Um, I think that, you know, I'm not, I don't have any delusions about my sculptures necessarily changing anyone's mind about that, but I'm, I guess I'm sort of celebrating my freedom from it. Like, you know, we, we moved into this house, there's a lot of spiders here and I don't have to freak out about it. Like I just kind of let them be in the silverware drawer drawer. Cause like, I'd rather not kill it. You know, I don't know. Like, they're probably helping us out too. I don't know. There's just more symbiosis and um, appreciation and um, and beauty in in our differences than I think people tend to realize. You know that that kind of reminds me in in something with your also with your execution series. Um, you know, it's what's interesting about your work is the the incredible detail of. The, the anatomy and everything everything but there is this interesting kind of there's this interesting juxtaposition with um anthropomorphizing these animals these these insects and when i say anthropomorphizing for some of my listeners it's it's basically putting on human characteristics towards uh animals really mm-hmm. it's kind of like i don't know if you've ever been to the pet store but if you ever look at the, the this is something that my, my kid and i laugh at every time if you look at pet food, they always make the dogs smiling, <laughs> like like crazy smiling. That's one of our fun. We're always when my kid and I are doing the groceries, we always walk through and we're like, let's find the happiest looking fake dog of all time. They make these dogs smile, and and the funny thing is, is with with our dogs, when one of them is smiling, this is not really happy. Oh look, he's happy. This is he's about to throw up. You know? <laughs> So, like, I'm fascinated by anthropomorphism. That's my favorite uh, human anthropomorphism. Look how hungry and happy this dog is to get this dog food. But when I look at the anthropomorphism of your work, it's you're setting this concept that they're having, you know, you know, um, with the execution series and you're, you know, you're taking these super, super realistic um, shapes and bodies and stuff like that. And then you're putting them in these very human forms. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm a fan of metaphor. Like, I don't really want to be um, using humanoid forms to necessarily uh, convey what I'm saying about humanity. Um, but I think insects and creatures are far more interesting to look at and actually can even push that idea further because when you anthropomorphize something 
it can be very evocative. Like I, th- I think that that is, I, I also find anthropomorphizing certain animals very funny. Um, I do yeah. it to my, my cats all the time, you know, um, put like toast on their face. And all yeah, that. yeah. Or just like assume that they're thinking a certain thing. And because of the way that they look, it's, it makes it funny. But, um, I also think that, uh, in some ways, like insects and, or just animals in general are a very accessible universal thing that is not, terribly triggering for people um so it is a pretty decent way to communicate certain certain ideas um it's almost like if i'm talking about execution and you know discrimination and othering and um just in general humans absolute compulsion to punish it's almost like I need to take the human out of it for you to even see that I'm talking about mm. talking about people, you know? Because your sculpture for the, the guillotine sculpture is a sculpture where you made this small guillotine. And yeah. you had some it looked like a I mean it looked like some type of centipede or millipede. Mm-hmm. And it was bound down to the table, but it was there wasn't a, there was enough of its body to wiggle and it looked like it was struggling to get out of this guillotine. And you've taken something, this kind of grotesque, you know, uh, insect, and the, you can feel the wriggling and you make, you make it more, you're more sympathetic to this insect than you would be if it was a human. I felt very, like, I was looking, I was just like, that motherfucker is wriggling out as hard as he can because he knows, he knows what's about to happen. And you created this like very, you know, you, this, you know, you the sympathy towards this monster, you know? Yeah. I found it to be, and once again, your craft has allowed me to not think like, oh, I can see the, you know, big well there. I, I, mm-hmm. I, it was over. All I, could, all I could think of is that motherfucker is trying to get out and save its life. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, um, <clears throat> you know, these are, these are things I've felt before. I, I think that I've, I've felt stuck and trapped and, um, I've done everything from fight my ass off to try to get out of the situation to, you know, becoming completely resigned where that's more of like the, um, the cement shoes piece. People really like the fact that that one is just in complete and utter defeat, you know? Um, hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that I'm talking about no pun intended either. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I got it. I, th- I think that there's there's a lot of personal reasons I'm I'm doing what I'm doing, and then there's also right. what I'm absorbing from the zeitgeist and 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 feeling the pulse of what's happening around me, and what I think is kind of important to nod to and um and sort of raise as an as an issue. Um, but uh, I I don't know. I mean I I'm not entirely sure that the monsters that I've been making are necessarily the same thing. You know. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, it's interesting because when you look at that, it, it is both, I mean, both guillotine and, um, the uh, cement shoes, that's the name of it. Yeah, like cement yeah. shoes. They're both the, both of those two pieces. And also the, the crucifix and the spider, you really have put, you really put these, these human characteristics into these biological, you know, these like for the most part, you know, to scale, you know, co- biologically correct you know, things I made birds and they look, you know, they look like dopey birds. They don't look like they're about to fly off. 
versus yours look like they are, you know, they're about to, to do their thing. So here's my tough question for you. Not that tough. Are you the insect or are you the tormentor? Um, I think I, I have the capacity to be both, but in hmm. m- more often than not, um, I feel like the insect, like I, you know, my therapist loves, loves to be like, are you feeling crucified? And I'm like, cause she's seen my work, you know, yeah, and she just she loves should, that one for some reason. She should, this is a mistake. She's making a mistake. She shouldn't be that. She should not be that. Cute. I don't think your therapist should allow, allow to be no jokes from the therapist. She, I'm against that. I'm against that. She has a hard job and she, she does, she's, 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 uh, she's been really wonderful. So, um, but I think that I she, I don't know. I don't know if I feel about clever jokes. I, think, I, think, I, I don't think, I think she's all... joking. All right. Well, <laughs> then, then, all right. Well, yeah. then job done. <clears throat> job done. Yeah. I think that, uh, I can tend to feel, you know, ostracized and judged and misunderstood a lot. Um, but you know, th- I also feel like that is kind of, um, you know, that I, I I don't remember when I finished that series, maybe like 2017, 2018. So it has been a few years. And I think that my perspective has changed a little bit. Um, and I'm not entirely. As it should. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know that I'm identifying um, with either one, with either necessarily anymore. I'm very jealous of you as a sculptor because you've been able to kind of like throw the, you know, the, the shackles of, of execution, and I'm, I'm talking about execution of sculpture, not your <laughs> sculpture execution, to be able to really truly focus on narrative. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And I, and I think that it's very, very, it's, I'm envious. I'm envious of your, I'm envious of you as a sculptor. Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I think that I'm coming from, a, I, I'm coming from a, a place of a lot of privilege too, you know, like yeah. I'm able to just go into my shop every day and figure out what I want to do without any real need to sell that sculpture. Um, I mean, ideally it would be great if I could run my business like a real business. Um, and that's the goal, but, um, I don't have to compromise. Um, and, and that's, that's also to say that like, I have, you know, I have these voices going through my head all the time that are like, you're not, you haven't been in the shop in a while. You know, you're, you're, you're not, um, taking advantage of every opportunity that's being given to you. And then sometimes I'll just like pop off and, and make a bad sculpture in there and spend a lot of time on something that Mm. I don't think actually is compelling just to be in the shop, um, at like, and, and do what like looks like quote unquote working. And, and I'll wind up going down a rabbit hole where I'm, I'm making something that's meaningless to me. You know, you and I are very similar in the sense of we, we do a lot of stuff out of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel very guilty about some things too. I, I feel I've constantly have a sense of a sense of guilt and, um, I completely understand how you're feeling. Yeah. I, I, no, I mean, I can't, I mean, I'm just assuming I, I know how to feel guilt. <laughs> I'm, very good. I'm, I'm fucking good at feeling guilty. I'm fucking the best. At yeah. It. That's a you very know? powerful emotion for me. And I'm very, I'm very motivated by guilt and, and fear. I will say, you know, um, huh. yeah. Are you, do you fear, do you fear, do you, fear, there's a picture of you on your Instagram where during the fires Yeah. and it was, I have friends in California. I have actually a good friend of mine who is leaving his, he and his wife are leaving their job. Uh, he had a very successful job. He's leaving because his wife is like scared of the fires. Yeah. And 
I would get pictures from some friends of mine in uh, Mendocino, and, and, and they'd send these. I mean, it's like the apocalypse is happening. And this picture of you is your butt. It's, 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 you know, if you told me you were from New York, I'd be, I'd, I'd be like, of course she is. It's a, such a New York picture. Because <laughs> you have this chain link fence behind huh. you, and you have these glasses, and you have like the gates of hell is opened up in the skies, and you're just like, yay, what's going on, Cal? Yay, what's up, Austin? <laughs> You know, ironically, here's the ironic thing about that. That day, because I'll never forget it, um, was the day that Frank and I put in the offer for a house in the fucking hills, (laughs) which is where the fires happen. Like, that's that's where the fires occur, you know? Um, So we're... We're, we, we were in the flats and now we're up in the hills. Um, and actually like the day after we moved in, um, there was a huge fire on our yard, on our, uh, on our street. Um, and within a few moments, like three houses were gone. Um, are you feeling scared about the future or in terms of the fires? Cause I feel like, I feel like when I see your work too, I feel like you're comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, as long as Frank and I get out of the house with our animals safely, nothing can destroy me, you know? Like yeah. uh, like possessions aren't important to me. Ideally, I would uh, offload some of these sculptures so I wasn't <laughs> like there wasn't a huge well. concentration of them in one spot, but yeah. um, you know, uh I think that Frank and I are really fortunate and so when I see people that are being devastated by the fires, they often have kids. They're often, you know, not married to a lawyer, you know, whatever happens, Frank and I will be okay. As long as Frank and I are okay, you know? Um, and that's really the only thing that's important to me, but I, I, you know, how did you meet Frank? We met at the bar. (laughs) Was it a bar you're working at? No. Um, it was, I mean, it was just a very unusual experience because I was, I was in art school at Academy, um, and my friend Amanda at the time was living on my couch, and uh, I was like, let's go to a bar, because I almost never had any money to go buy a drink, (laughs) Um, but we went, and uh, there was this guy that was just randomly walking around introducing people in the smoking room, and naturally, that's where me and Amanda were. We were chain smoking and drinking whiskey and uh he brought frank and our friend omid over to us and uh yeah frank and i just just uh fell in love who is this guy who's introducing people i don't know we've got to find him at some point <laughs> isn't that crazy just, just that's amazing he doesn't isn't know it? so how long how long have you been together um we've been together for nine years married for six Ozzelton. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And he's from California? Mm-hmm. He's from LA. You know, I think that those relationships where it's, it's totally different people mm. usually do very well. Yeah. Frank and I are very complimentary um, because he's also, well, he is very empathic, but he's also very analytical. Um, so whereas I'm emotional and very like intuitive, he's far more like, mm. and he's very big picture oriented. And I... I just have to be honest. I cannot see the big picture ever. I am always caught up in the details, no matter what, hmm. no matter what. But I mean, it's a means to, I mean, it's a good means to an end. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 there's nothing, it, that's, that, that's very, very interesting. And I'm sure, I would imagine that Frank is a huge fan of your work. 
Yeah, he loves my work. He he's he's mostly the reason why I haven't like dropped my prices to like something that you know. It, like he's like, don't get, I don't want you to get rid of that piece. I love that one, and I'm like, what right. about this one? He's like, no, I want that one too. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, he's... we're we're not too dissimilar. I'm starting to think New Yorkers are very similar. Yeah, my wife is a nurse practitioner, and she she has a hard time. She wants to be creative, mm. but she just has a hard time doing it. And she's done now. Her favorite thing to do is knitting, and she's become very extraordinary with her. She just enjoys. She gets a project, and she does these projects. But I think she used to tell me that she she lives, um, she lives through what I do, like. And now I'm very like, some of my sculptures are like, you'll fuck that thing at the door. And then she's just like, no, 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 that's my favorite. I actually got a, I got a, we're moving out of our office in, um, we're moving our, our, out of our office in uh, New York. And I have a couple paintings in there that I'm just like, I don't know what to do with these motherfuckers. And, and I said, maybe I'll just paint over them. And my wife like got really mad that I even suggested that. It was really like, it was really good for my ego to have a partner who was very supportive of what I was doing. So I can imagine that you feel the same way. Yeah, I, I mean, when we were we were packing up our apartment, I uh, I started like I took a an exacto knife and just started cutting all of my old paintings off of the canvases, and I thought Frank was going to freak out about it, um, which is why I was kind of sneakily doing it behind his back because it's so much. It, it, like we, we just we don't have the room for forty stretch canvases downstairs anymore i just wanted to be able to roll them up in one roll and be like we're never going to display this student work ever again um but he was fine with it <laughs> he was like cut that one off too we don't need that one on it we don't need that one stretched right. well, you know, i mean they're not like you know it's not complete blind blind support you yeah know, a little bit of you know a little bit of uh perils okay right? but that's when you know i mean when he does want to hold on to something really strongly. I know he actually, he means it, you know? Um, and he's far more, he's far more connected to my sculptures. I'd say, um, yeah, he's, he's a lot more, um, keen on like my first steel sculpture that I ever made. He, we can't rip So it. if you were to say what Frank, now this is the Frank interview. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to say what his favorite style of your work is, whether the execution series or the plants, or the uh, monsters. Where is he going in terms of what's his? What is it? When you say I'm about to work on this, does he? Which does he say? Oh, great! I can't wait to see it. Well, I mean, I think he's wise enough to know that, like, every time I like come up with a plan, like after if I've been like, you know, because I do all my designing at home, I do all my model building at home. So if he watches me struggle and struggle and struggle, and I'm finally like, I've got it. And he's like, I think that's a terrible idea. Like, he's going to hear it from me all night long. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm going to be like, what do you mean it's a bad idea? What, like, explain. Um, and and so with the execution series, like, he, I've, I haven't gone back to that style necessarily. So I'm just kind of moving forward. But I will say that he's really – the the Flame Lily piece that I just finished um, earlier on this year, I think he felt was uh, – I don't, I don't think revelation is the cor the correct word, but he felt like that was a turning point for me. And that like, I, that, that I'm, I'm becoming more comfortable doing feminine work. Um, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, cause everything I did historically was very heavy and bulky and, um, stocky and, you know, now I'm just, uh, I'm playing with lines and mm. I think he's digging that. 
because you you fall into you fall into the you know hit the historical importance of of sculptors and especially female artists working with you know plants and flowers and you mm-hmm. can't stop you can't not think about Georgie O'Keeffe yeah um, and you can't not think about that you know incredible you know history of it it, it so I, it's it's interesting that you say feminine because actually I was actually before we were inter- before this interview I was doing a lot of research on artists and I was really trying to get into I was trying to get into for some reason I thought Louise Bourgeois is going to be a great you know, person to talk about and because there are similarities. And when I started to learn about her history, she was also a painter who didn't want to, who didn't want to, she wanted to be a painter and somebody pushed her into uh, being a sculptor. Interesting. And then when she looked back on her work, she did these giant spiders and these, you know, giant steel spiders and stuff and all this other stuff. She rejected the concept that she was a feminist artist. Mm. And she, she said, it's not true. I was just, you know, the spiders represented my mother and the mother, you know, we when she was growing up, she had her parents had a uh, a tapestry uh, gallery, and they'd sell tapestries. And the spider is the weaver, and the spider is the nurturer. And the but the, she rejected she rejected these these theories that people were putting upon her. And be, so I just I was I'm glad that you you just said you know I'm kind of dealing with more of these feminine things. And how do you I mean where do you want to go? Where do you think you're going to go with that? Well, I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I actually do need to look into Louise Bourgeois more. I mean, I, I love her work and I've, I haven't actually like endeavored into her personal story, but you know, I, I've said the same thing to Frank where I was like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a feminist, you know, cause I had one kind of understanding of what that was. And he was like, your entire existence, like you don't have a choice. Like you are mm. a feminist just based on what you're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but they, they brought up Georgia O'Keefe and I was like, I, I'm, I'm not doing, you know, no. (laughs) You're not doing what? Vagina flowers. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much what, that's what the, the the mind goes to when, when you talk about Georgia O'Keefe in New Mexico making these flowers that are, you know. Giants. Yeah. And, you know, I've always looked at her work and been like, oh, she's so in your face feminine, you know, um, right. and uh, and and I guess shunning it in some way. I mean, not really necessarily shunning it, but being like, I'll never be that. I'm going to be so much more moderate and diplo- diplomatic and, you know, mm. in, in the middle. And uh, but th- this also like folds into like my shop practices in general, too. Like when I when I first was a metal fact when I, you know, like over the years, I've gotten more comfortable, like getting my nails done, getting my hair done, like, and being feminine in my shop instead of feeling like I have to fit in and I don't want to get my femininity all over the place, you know? Um, so I guess I'm just, I'm coming to terms with it, but you know, it's interesting to me when I hear somebody, you know, um, say, oh, your work reminds me of Georgia, or you're, you know, you're kind of dealing with certain similar themes, and my immediate response is to reject that. Hmm. I've come to understand that that means that there's something triggering about it. It's not that it's not necessarily true. It's probably very much so true, but I don't, but you know. You're trying to control the, your perception, your, the perception of you as well. Yeah. And I think that the problem is in terms of our history, when you're dealing with any type of, if you're a woman and you're dealing with flowers, they're going to save Giorgio Keefe. It doesn't really matter yeah, what you yeah, make about yeah, to- him. No, totally. There's not a whole lot you can, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Yeah. I'm interested in what you said about terms of like, you know, you, you used to, you know, get your hair done and your, or your nails done and 
you can kind of control the way you are because I know you were in a shop with a lot of really, you know, really talented artists. Actually, a couple knife makers, uh, Nanda Knives reached out. Mm, he, mm. He's down the street from you. Yes, and he was just, Nick. He just couldn't stop talking. Nick couldn't stop talking about how great you are. And he wanted, he just wanted me to send a message saying, she's so badass. I'm so glad you're having her on. You have, you're surrounded by all these really, really talented dudes. And, yeah. I, and it is interesting that you say that you're kind of like, you tone it down because you just don't want it to be in your face. Well, I think that, Feminine. well, it's the opposite. Like I, I, um, like I'm starting to tone it up. I'm starting to be like, I, I think you're just going to have to accept my purple nails. And everyone's like, oh, your nails are beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, I, I think that for a long time, I, I was telling myself that if I like was too feminine, that I wouldn't be taken seriously, you know? Hmm. That's interesting because, you know, that's interesting because, you know, I, I, when I was at a metal shop and we were teaching people to weld, like I always used to say, I'd rather teach a woman how to take weld because she'd get it faster. Yeah. Like I always felt like in terms of welding, women had a, a sense of they're just faster. They listen. They're, they're fast. I mean, I don't mean if I'm, if I'm, I don't know if I'm saying anything properly. No, I, I don't care. Noticed <laughs> I noticed it as, I mean, I, I, I noticed mm. it as, I noticed it as like, in volume, it was much easier to teach women how to weld than it was men. Yeah. I mean, it, when I was at Academy, I would say that the women were holding down the metal shop, you know, like yeah. it was mostly MFAs and they were doing everything from casting to um, uh, forging to fabrication and they were really killing it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's interesting because I've never um, I've never had the ability to learn from another woman. Um, all of my mentors have been men, um, which has been, and I've had some, I mean, I've just, I've had my experiences that I've had just, a. I mean, tens, tens of dozens of, of men that were, um, just extremely benevolent and egalitarian and have kind of propped me up to, and showed me everything that they, they knew. Um, so you know, I, I'm, I'm just now starting to meet a lot of women in the area that are, you know, uh, fabricating or metalsmithing in one way or another. Um, but a lot of them have like really pretty nails and like pretty hair. And I was like, oh, you don't get like rejected from your shop for having like pretty purple nails. And they're like, no, <laughs> I, I mean, it was some, it was obviously something that was in my head, you know, that I felt like that I, if I were, I guess this is something that's a pretty common sentiment for me that like the more the more I open up the less I control my image of myself and kind of just mm. uh, the more I'm me the more people are gonna recoil and decide that they don't want to be friends with me what what are you talking about come on <laughs> don't pull that bullshit with me I'm like, come on, you're a fascinating person you can't don't, you, listen I can take a little bit of bullshit but not that much you know no, I spend true. a I spent a little time, just a little bit of time uh, last year with uh, Ellen Durkin. Mm, mm -hmm. Ellen Durkin is an extraordinary human being. I've never met her. She's hilarious. Yeah. She's, she, she's, she paints her nails and she, she mm. actually does pin up, mm -hmm. pin up work pictures too. Yeah. But she's probably one of the most, when I look at her work as a sculptor, she, I have a problem. I don't have a problem. I, Chris Cash gets mad at me when I say this. I don't have a problem with blacksmiths. I like to see people pushing the forging in a certain direction to the point where you're not like your work. When I look at your work, I'm not bogged down by the technical aspects of the work. 
I, I want to just kind of get into the narrative without the trappings of, you know, how it's done. Yeah. She's one of these people who has kind of pushed traditional blacksmithing in a direction towards fashion and towards sculpture. And she's very, she's hilarious. And she has tweaking bars that the end of the tweaking bars are, are, are penises. They're fantastic. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're fantastic. And she's, she's one of these people who is just like, you just, she's body. She's hilarious. She's extraordinarily talented. And she enjoys all, I feel like she enjoys it all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've just recently sort of become familiarized with her work and, uh, she's, she's in California, isn't she? Uh, I don't know. She teaches all over I the I think place. that she's, she, I, I, I'm, I feel like she's part of CBA. So I, I, hmm. I, I'm hoping that we'll get to meet each other sometime soon. Um, yeah, she's, she doesn't give a fuck. She's great. I mean, that's, <laughs> I love that's it. the best part. Yeah. That's the best. I mean, that's really what you want. That's what you want in anybody, yeah. man or woman. You want someone who just doesn't give a fuck. And Ellen is one of these people who kind of that same thing. I think that, and, and the funny thing about Ellen is, that's not funny. She deals with the old school dudes. She's mm-hmm. in Havana. She's had her, she's had her run-ins with the, the, the old fogies in Havana. And she's helped to kind of, she's helping to kind of, Re- redo uh, I think that her I don't know if you know about the controversy from a couple of years ago no Can I tell it to you I'll tell it to you. so and this is anybody who's listening who's a member of Abana just leave it to me just <laughs> you, you can send your messages to me it's fine so Abana was doing they were having an event and it was canceled this year because of COVID-19 and it was going to have incredible demonstrators Pat Quinn was going to be there and um I know uh, Nick Ross. I think um, Matt Parkinson was, a, you know, uh, journeyman blade, awesome bladesmith, mm. and all. The, it was going to be a great event for a band. And I know Chris Cash is going to be there, and Jesse Savage, and all those guys are going to be. It was it was going to be a great event, and they were posting pictures of the demonstrators. And what happened was, is part of the p- images that Ellen does is she does these classic pinup pictures. Um, some of them have her, a lot of them have her work and some of them are kind of like classic Betty page style images. Mm-hmm. So when she, when she started sending, when she sent the pictures for the, for the letter, you know, some of these Abana guys are, they're much, they're on the older side and they're a little bit more traditional. One of the things about Abana is it's more, it has years and years of this older experience and they rejected the pictures because they thought that they were too suggestive. And it became, you know, the more she sent, the more they rejected her. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I'm based, a lot of it's hearsay too. So it's not, I didn't hear it from the horse's mouth. I heard it from a couple of horses that were in the same stall. <laughs> and, 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 um, it became a, an issue because, you know, she was an, I mean, she's, and she, and she had the, you know, the backing of, you know, other demonstrators who were, she, this wasn't just like, you know, this wasn't an, this wasn't an issue of her, her not being talented. Mm-hmm. This was an issue of her, how she portrayed herself and, you know, the people at the Animals Ring or Abana felt the need that it was too risque, the images for them to put the thing and turn it into a big production. It was like a big kerfluffle in the blacksmith community and um, there was a lot of people for what she was doing. A lot of the, most of the younger people and a lot of older people were just like very against it and it was like this, it, I, in my opinion, it was this amazing moment because I've always felt like Abana needed new blood. And guys like uh, John Williams, who an incredible blacksmith, mm. joined the board. And you, know, you get these younger guys involved. And hopefully once um, COVID kind of ends and we have a little bit more of a ability to meet, there's going to be more, more uh, things 
for you know this you know metalworking in general but especially abana and i i really you know i ended up learning about um ellen kind of through that mm. and then i got to meet her and talk to her and she's just an extraordinary person and she kind of she she really said fuck them and she went after him too like it wasn't <laughs> apology wasn't good enough but she went <laughs> She went full blast, so to speak, and, and like, and like was relent was relentless in 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 her treatment, and I just really, you know, I really have a lot ton of respect for. Her, yeah, you know, yeah, I could probably learn a lot from Ellen, actually. <laughs> yeah, she don't give a. F- she, yeah, but she, I feel like you don't give a fuck. Either. Well, it depends. It it really depends. Um, you know, I. I, I don't know. I mean, I try not to bring any heat on myself either. That's definitely, it's an ancient feeling, yeah. but like, it's still something that I, you know, I have to overcome is feeling. What do you mean by heat? Like, um, like I don't want to bring negative attention. Right. <laughs> like I, you know, you like I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to call attention to myself if it's going to be, you know, rage coming at me or anything, you know? You know what? I am so fucking stupid because I do these podcasts and in my mind, I'm on Knife Talk, and, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, like, there's just no way people are going to listen to, you know, every week they're going to listen about, you know, hand sanding and plunge lines. It's just, I got to say something crazy. So I end up saying something, I become unguarded, I have, you know, mm. I could become unguarded, or I say something to try to make, my, you know, my co-host laugh or something like that. And I always think, this is the thing I'm going to get problems for. Yeah. And, and I know, exa- and I think, Jesus, just shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Then you'll be okay. Don't just don't rock the boat. You don't need any. You don't need any heat. I had a guy. Here's a good example. I said some. I made some offhanded crack about a guy. I didn't mention his name. I don't even remember who he was. And he wrote me a DM saying, "I'm really sorry that I hurt your feelings." And I was just like, "No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have made a joke in in your." And I was just like, "I gotta. It's it's you gotta do all this kind of backfilling of of feelings because you know you do something, you say something, you're just like, this is total. I'm totally regretting this." Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. Definitely, um, really scary for me to to be uh, spe- like going on podcasts, you know, speaking publicly. Like I, I'm so used to being behind the scenes for a reason, <laughs> you know. Like I just like, most of the time I'm in my shop, like not making any grand statements. Um, well, this is not this is not the grand statement. Podcast. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is like the, you know, podcasts now yeah. are really this isn't. It's just for keep you know occupying people's time, yeah, and giving them you know giving them something in listening to people and and you know you especially. I, mean, I know that when I started posting about this, I know that um, a lot of people are excited because they want to hear your story. I think that your story is extraordinary and the level of skill that you have. I mean, it's a, it's annoying. <laughs> it's, 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 I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed at how talented you are. I'm thinking that there's some like sandblasting and, and asses all over the place because I'm trying to figure out how you did all this stuff and just annoyed. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, that's the highest compliment I can pay you. Yeah, I you do know? appreciate that. Um, but I mean, at the same time, it's just like this was meant to be. This was, I, I had to change this around because it started to become too much like a, an interrogation, and and I, I wanted it to be this kind of like of a fun conversation yeah and i yeah. hope you had a good oh, time oh yeah absolutely and it is fun um i think i'm just kind of also very in touch with my emotions because i'm you know 
in therapy. I think you and I are much more. So we're going to have to talk more off, yeah, off, for the, sure. off the recording because I think that there's a lot more. <laughs> you, have, you and I have a lot more similarities than I think we realize. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff I was like picking up on. I was just like, yeah, this is. Yeah, I, I, I totally know how she feels. No, I can hear so it in your voice, too. Yeah, I feel like we're two peas in a pod. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, New Yorkers in general. I think New Yorkers in general are, are very similar. Um, but uh, what's next for you? What are you what what are you working on now? So um, my mission, like for the, I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to go back into my shop. It looks like we're going to shut down again here. I I don't really yeah. know. This year has been kind of crazy, and there's a lot to do here. But when I do get back into the shop, whether it's December, or January. Um, my new mission is to make affordable artwork. <laughs> so, um, I've got a lot of ideas for, um, more flower monsters and, um, and then, you know, my whole goal this year was to learn how to blacksmith. Um, and then COVID hit and pretty much everything shut down. So I'm going to try to, um, figure out a way to, um, take some classes because I skipped over mm. all the basics, um, which I think is a really bad idea. I don't know if it is. I like to learn while I'm sculpting, but there right. are like really basic things that I don't know how to do. Um, and I, I can feel it. I can feel the lack of fundamentals sort of shaking the foundation that I'm standing on and being like, if I just take one class or even a private lesson with somebody, yeah. I'll probably be in much better shape, you know? <clears throat> I just don't want, I just don't want you to be, I just, I'm, this is a, this is a very selfish thing. I just don't want you to be like, I just don't want you to lose what you have. Yeah, me neither. Because I'm some, terrified that, that of it. Can that can happen. <laughs> no, can don't ha tell no, me that. that. that <laughs> no, no, but I mean, saying that that can happen. I mean, like all of a sudden I'm thinking, I'm thinking, oh God, she's going to start to make these fucking <laughs> roses out of, out of sheet metal. And it's just like, She's gonna learn how to do that from some dipshit in, in San Francisco, and it's gonna be. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. Like I feel like I feel like you you're you. I mean, when I look at the even just like the orchids and and you're. you're I had a I had a whole bit, but we're running out of time. I had a whole bit of. I have. I'll have to send you this. It's just like the thirty-five weirdest plants, but I mean, we're gonna have to do that for the next the yes. next time I have you on. But, but um, I, I just I I I just don't I the first railing I ever built was before I was a blacksmith, and I had no. I had no real understanding of how you do railings and how you lay them out and how you, you know, how things are supposed to work. And I had this, I, I ended up making something that I wish I had made now. Like it was so wrong mm. that it looked great. And I just don't want, I just don't want like proper fundamentals to ruin the, the, the extraordinary sculptor that you are. Uh, I, I, I think that it, they won't. I don't think that they will. I think that what winds up happening for me is um, right now I'm finding ways to like sculpt around upsetting something because I don't know how to properly upset something right. like things like right. that where it's like I yeah like if, if if somebody wants to teach me how to make a wizard bottle opener like that will I will be able to look at that and be like okay if I was able to do this let me extrapolate on that. And, uh, Chris is, Chris can, Chris can help you with wizard bottle. <laughs> yeah. Chris is all, Chris is all wizard bottle opener. <laughs> it's just that there's certain basics, um, that, uh, like you learn in those lessons that I, I'm, I'm mostly working with sheet, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm learning things the hard way. And I don't think that needs to be the case. I think that I could, I could benefit from a little bit of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. It would definitely help your efficiency. Yeah. 
Like that would be moving. I think that that would be move, being able to kind of manipulate mass. I'm I'm very you know I'm very flip. Apparently, Chris Chris Cash tells me that I've angered a lot of people by the way I talk about blacks. In the game. <laughs> I mean, if you don't say something, if you don't say something a little bit controversial, I mean, who the fuck's gonna listen? To <laughs> but I mean, seriously, it's just like relax, everybody. I mean, you're, I, I said something about bottle openers. I heard. Like I, I said <laughs> I something. Heard. All I said was, here's listen. Roy, Roy, I love Roy, but the guys, the both of them have me wrong. They both said that I, I don't like bottle openers, and that's not the case. Yeah. I just want to push people more. I want people to push more. It's nothing to do with bottle openers. God bless you. If you want to make bottle openers, knock yourself out. I just want to see, I want to see more. That's all I want to do. That's all I want to see more. So, so you can't go to your, sh- so they closed your shop down? No, no, not, no. I mean, I'm just, I, I think we're probably going to go into lockdown here again pretty soon um, with COVID. Um, and that's not to say that I can't go into my shop, but um, I've, I've been kind of of the mind of like, if I don't need to be in the way, like I'm, I'm trying to stay right. out of the way um, because there, that's helpful. there are a lot of people there. It's, it's a compound. Um, it's not just me. I'm share a bathroom with a lot of people. Some right. of them live there. Some of them are immunocompromised. So it's not just, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't feel like working today. It's like, I don't. I don't want to be in the way if I don't have to be. I, I couldn't yeah. agree with you yeah. more. I'm totally of the mind. I just, it's, I just actually read some, a restaurant that I know they just closed because two of the servers tested positive for mm-hmm. COVID. I know that Philly is just, Philly is about to go into lockdown. Um, indoor dining is going to be done. We're right now in New York and where I am, they just did a, they just did a, um, a curfew on restaurants and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure they're going to be stopping indoor dining pretty soon. Yeah, I probably should be only takeout. Is this is like this is like? In, my wife's a nurse practitioner. And it's like we wake up. At, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, and she and I just kind of like is dread. Yeah, all we do is feel dread, and and it's like when will it end? How are we? How is this going to end? How is the stress? I mean, we, we're not going to do Thanksgiving with my mother, you know, and, and we're not, you know, because she's she's testing like four or five people a day yeah and we don't want to and obviously my kid and i are we already had it once yeah. in april and we 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 just we the thought of us passing it along it's one of those things that i don't i don't want to be involved with that i and uh, you know but yeah that that's a big thing for me too and my husband has to keep reminding me that actually i mean even though i'm an idiot smoker and just uh I'm planning on quitting tomorrow. I have really bad asthma, so it's not. It's not. It wouldn't be good for me to get Dude, it either. Terrible. You know. Um, yeah. I'm not going to tell you to quit smoking. Huh? I'm sure. I'm not going to tell you to quit smoking, but I'm sure you. Uh, I. I'm. You know. This is actually my third attempt this year, and it's just been as as you. This want. is a tough. <laughs> This is I a don't tough know year. My, why I picked this year to quit smoking. It's a oh, tough man. one because I tell you what, my alcohol level, <laughs> yeah. my alcohol consumption. I mean, like I just threw out a bottle of Jameson's last night, empty bottle of Jameson's mm-hmm. last night. I was just like, boy, I used to, I used to be able to hold on to these bottles a lot longer. Yeah. And so, so I know that there's like, I know that this is like, this is like the worst time for any kind of vices. So yeah, I shouldn't have even made a, I shouldn't have made a crack. All of a sudden, I'm just like, all, all of a sudden, you're, you're like fucking what? You're the Dalai Lama. You're fucking, I just, I saw the recycling bin, you fucking asshole. I mean, I, what am I, crazy? I'm talking to you like, like all of a sudden I'm like, I know. <laughs> so what are you, what are you going to be working on between now and 
when you get back to the shop full time? Um, well, I have a piece there actually that I have been incrementally working on all year and I, you know, I took a break from it and went back into the shop the other day and was kind of like, I, I like this piece and I want to finish it. So I'll probably sneak in there a little bit to try to finish that piece. That is a sculpture on mind control. Um, love it. Yeah. You and I need to talk. I got a book for you. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Um, I'm down. (laughs) I got books for you. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So it's like this, it's an, it's, it's like this octopus, um, like looking thing with, uh, like it's like an octo spider and then it's got this, like a you know a cavern in the back of its head where there's this eyeball um like with like uh, all like the nerves attached that's burrowing into the back of its head and its hands are like shoved in its head as if it's like controlling it and trying to like it's it's eyes like the the thing doesn't have its own eyes so you know this thing is like i'll be your eyes but then you have to it's trust and yeah. Wow. Um, when, when do you think this will be done? I, it's not a huge piece, and actually, all the hard parts are done. You'd be, I mean, like amazed at ha- like the levels of procrastination that I'm going through right now. <laughs> I literally have to like draw out a few tapers, and but, like this thing could but, pretty much be ninety percent. But you know now that everybody wants to see this. Yeah. Now that you're now the, the procrastination is over because everybody wants to see this new sculpture. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna um, probably in the next. Uh, the next two weeks here, I'm going to try to get back into the shop. I, you know, I, I mean, as much as I have been having a great time with all the fantasies of, you know, like the the house and like working the land, like I'm also just spinning out and I really feel like I need to feel something normal. Um, yeah. So that, that would be the shop going in there and well, smelling melting metal, you know? Well, here's to feeling normal yeah <laughs> I, I can't i couldn't I, I couldn't ask for a better thing to say here's the feeling normal that's all i want is normal. yeah me too leia you're outstanding you're outstanding you're you extraordinary i'm fine I'm passing. <laughs> you're an extraordinary sculptor a very fascinating person incredibly in depth if you want to go to instagram and go follow leia arapach mm-hmm. on instagram you also go to her website because look at her work and there needs, we're going to see some more of her. I'm convinced she's extraordinary. If you're a metal worker, you, I defy you to tell me how she does any of it. And if you do tell me, I'll know that you're lying. And she's not using a TIG welder, so that we've already established <laughs> that she's even working harder than she should. Be. So God bless her. Pat on the back to you for doing that. I mean, if you told me you did it all with a stick welder, I, I have to stop this podcast right now. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> thanks again. I'm going to have to have you back on. I'm going to have to have you back on. We we we. You and I, there's too there's too much similarities. Yeah. I, I I need to we need to debrief a little bit. Yeah. But guys, listen to me. Next week is the Black Friday special. I'm gonna have Ben Snoor and John Porter, Jonathan Porter on. We're gonna have the we're gonna have cowboy talk. Nice. We're have two cowboys, and we're gonna talk some horse shit. I actually have a few bits from. I'm gonna do with those guys. Who knows what's gonna happen? It could be a complete shit house. <laughs> and then after that, I have um, so I have my buddy Emiliano. Uh, last name's Castillo. He is an extraordinary knife maker. He's coming on next after the week after that, and I got a pile of guys. I'm even lining up the first week of the first week of January. So we were gonna have some fun and uh, go to on Instagram, go to the Full Blast Podcast, and and give us if you want to interact with the show. I appreciate it. Uh, and then uh, you know do your thing. Uh, if I don't if I don't see you until 
next Friday. Arriva Derchi, and I hope you have a great weekend. All right? Thanks, Leah. Thank you. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.